0: The tribe of Levi is the, the tribe that Aaron and Moses were from, one of the 12 sons. But out of the Levites, the house of Aaron's kids alone would be priests So most of the Levites never actually went into the temple. The temple wall. Um, actually, square footage-wise, it wouldn't be much bigger than our building here. Okay, and um, it was only required for the priests to actually go in and light the menorah and put the showbread there, and and then the curtain, the holy of holies behind that. Um, the Levites were a part of uh, assisting the priest, uh, counseling the people. They were of the tribe of Levi, but they weren't. Of the lineage of Aaron and his sons and then um, we have the civil leaders about 84 total signed in complete of all the groups 84 signatures in totality and now in verse 28 now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethinim, all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of the Lord, and their wives and their sons and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge, and understanding, these joined with their brother and their nobles and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in these. Joined with their brother and their nobles and entered into a curse, of those to walk in the law of the Lord, which was given them to do all the commandments, the ordinances, and the statutes statutes of the Lord. So all the rest of the people, that is everyone who had knowledge and understanding, gives us a bit of a key here that if you remember back in, in the Torah, when the children of Israel murmured and complained, God said everybody 19 years old and under will not die in the wilderness. They're not going to be cursed with their parents' unbelief. But 20 years old, that's what I'm going to mark as an adult, 20 years old and above will die in the wilderness. So really the age of accountability was 19. But the time we we get to the time of Christ, again, the Jewish culture had changed, not the Bible, but the culture has changed. And you had the bar mitzvah, which now the young Jewish boys around 12 or 13 were counted as adults. So this seems to be happening at this. So those that were able to understand what was going on, probably 12, 13-year-olds, also were able, allowed to sign this document. They separated themselves from the peoples of the land. That was a big issue, if you remember, and we'll look at it here some more in a second. But then also, they separated themselves to the law of God. They realized unless they separated themselves from the pagan world around them, they would never be able to really separate themselves to the word of God, the principles of God. Same in the New Testament. We are to separate ourselves from the wickedness of this world that we might serve the Lord. In 2 Timothy 2.19, so many verses on this, but 2 Timothy 2.19, Paul tells young Pastor Timothy, nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal, The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. In 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21, but in a great house are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor, some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful for the master, prepared for every good work. So in the New Testament, we also equally are a chosen people. In 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, you are a chosen generation, not that of the Jews, but nevertheless of the children of Abraham by faith. The church, the New Testament church, we're a chosen generation. We're a royal priesthood. We're priests, we're kings unto God. We're a holy nation, his own special, peculiar, unique people, just like the Jews were, we are as the believers, that you may proclaim the praise of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Therefore, as the people of God, first Peter goes on to say in chapter two, verse 11 and 12, as the people of God, I beg you as sojourners, pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against your soul, Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So conduct yourself honorably amongst the Gentiles. Don't be murmuring and complaining, but separate yourself as people of God. Here they needed to get away from the intermarrying. They needed to separate themselves from the pagan cultures around them that they could give themselves to obeying the word of God. Because when they found themselves intertwined with the world around them, they found that they couldn't obey the laws of God. Maybe it was the kosher laws. Maybe it was the sacrificial laws. There are various things that God's word asked them to do that did not make sense, did not work in a world that was intertwined with the pagan world around them. Sometimes to give ourselves to the word of God, to the will of God, to the world that God would have us to live in. We have to get rid of worldliness to do that. Hebrews 12 says, let us lay aside every weight and sin. Maybe it's not a sin, but it's a weight. It's a worldliness. It's a something that we got to separate ourselves from so that we can run that race with endurance that's still left for us to run. Here they entered into a curse and an oath. They said, we want teeth in this. We, we, we want it to be an uncompromising covenant. If we err to the right or err to the left, if we're not on that narrow road that leads to life, we want teeth in it, we want there to be a bite, we want there to be a clear red signal signs going off that we're not on the right path. Well, we probably wouldn't say it exactly like that, but we do say the same type of thing, don't we? Lord, whatever it takes, I want to follow you. Lord, whatever it takes, I want to be a man of God after your own heart. I know in Philippians, when I studied that passage in chapter three, where Paul says, I want to know you, the fellowship of your suffering. I want to be conformed to the image of your death. I was reading that time, the life story of David Bernard, uh, the first Christian missionary to the American Indians. And in there, he just had such a beautiful heart, of commitment. I just came to the place to say, Lord, I don't care the pain. I don't care the hardship. I don't care the suffering. I don't care the difficulty. Whatever it means to follow your perfect will, that's what I want. And I just sensed a great pleasure from the Lord of of him saying, yes, Brian, I've got you fully. I can mold you perfectly, you're warm clay. I can steer you to the left. Remember that in the Psalms where it says, don't be like the horse or the mule. The old King James has it right. Don't be an ass where God has to steer you with the bridle. But just the eye, just looking with that tender, gentle breeze is all it takes. That little look of the eye, the movement around the eye, I am responding to the will of the Lord. Well, in verse 30, we would not give our daughters as wives to the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. This is a big issue, especially at this time. For the Jewish people to, to live their lives ordered in marriage the way God had told the Jewish people to do it. One, if you guys might remember back, it says repeatedly that they would turn their hearts after their pagan gods. Remember, it says this in 1 Kings 11 too. Where it's talking about Solomon, but he says, God, just as you said, we're not to intermarry. Surely they will turn our hearts after their gods. Well, Solomon clung to these same pagan foreign wives of his and spent his last days building pagan temples. But remember, it was a big issue to Ezra, the priest because of the possible mingling of the Holy Seed. Remember back in Ezra nine, this was a huge thing, especially with the tribe of Judah, because they knew the Messiah was coming through the tribe of Judah. And also for the Levites, their sons to be priests, especially the sons of Aaron. And and so he says in in, in Ezra nine there, verse two, for they are taking their daughters and themselves for their sons, so that the Holy Seed having mingled themselves with the peoples of this land. Satan was active trying to destroy uh, throughout history, trying to destroy that lineage that would bring the Messiah uh, as prophesied. You know, the marriage is a covenant with God. And uh, in Malachi 2.14, it says, she is your companion and your wife by covenant. You know, in, in, a, in a, you, you got a contract And you got a covenant. A contract is like a construction guy. He basically says I am assuming the worst of the human nature. I'm assuming you're gonna try to steal from me. I'm assuming you're not gonna keep to do a quality work as an electrician or a plumber or whatever. And therefore, I'm putting some real teeth into this contract. So if you don't do what you're supposed to do, when you're supposed to do it, you'll lose money. And I have power over you because of this contract. A covenant is actually expecting the best of people. It's saying that I trust you through Christ towards God, as Paul says in Second Corinthians 2, that Your commitment to God, your covenant to God is so great. Whatever covenant you make with him towards man, it would be like you breaking the covenant with God to break the covenant with man. And so that's exactly what the marriage covenant is. It's between the husband and God and the wife and God and their family and witnesses. and and saying to the society, God, we've entered into a covenant with God in marriage. So what God has joined together, let no man separate. Well, verse 31. Now, if the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. And we would forego the seven year produce and exacting every debt. This was a big issue. They, they were living like a pagan culture seven days a week. They weren't acknowledging the Sabbath. They just were, every day was a work day. And if you go to many cultures, that's the way it is. Yeah, I, I could tell you stories about other countries I've been to. Uh, people that are lucky enough to have a job, they are working unbelievable hours. Seven days a week, 16, 17 hours a day for peanuts. To, to just to have a job. It was horrible. And this is what they were doing. They, they weren't giving their employees. they weren't giving anybody a break, You're not giving them a day of rest. And they said, hey, we agree that we will stop our business on the seventh day and uh, we won't buy anything on that day. When I was a kid growing up in a small town in Central California, there was nothing open on Sunday. Everything was closed. Dennys would op- open up Sunday evening. <laughs> But outside of that, when you drove around town, mall wasn't open, there was nothing open. 100% of everything was shut down. And um, not so today though, is it? Um, And then of course you have the seventh year produce. Remember every seventh year they were to take a year of vacation and trust God for a seven year rest. They never did it. That's why they were 70 years in Babylon in their recent history because they had been in the land 490 years, seven divided into 490 is 70. So God said, I was gonna bless you every seventh year and you were gonna have a great vacation with my blessings upon you without working. But instead you never gave it, I never blessed it, so I took it and it was never a blessing to you. I vomited you out of the land, I took you out of the land for 70 years so it could have its rest. And then there's the other types of years, the seventh and the 50 year of Jubilee. There's certain times when all debts was erased. They weren't taking those sabbaths. There were several different sabbaths God gave them, and they didn't obey any of them. And they said, "We will, for now on." Well, in verse 32 to 35, it talks about the various givings and donations they were to do, and in essence, one third of a shekel—that's the ta- temple tax that was going on during the time of Christ. Remember. They came to Jesus and said, are you guys going to pay your temple tax? And Jesus said, Peter, go fishing. Do you remember this story? And Peter caught a fish, and there was some money in there, and they paid their temple tax. Um, they were also at appointed times to bring wood, and then they were also to bring the firstborn, the first fruits to God. And then on top of all that, a tithe, 10%. Proverbs 3 9 and 10 honor the Lord from your possessions with the first fruit of all your increase so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine so there was this whole blessing of not honoring God on the Sabbath and not honoring God with the various givings of offerings and tithes they were tithes and offerings they were to give the firstborn in verse 36 of their sons you say, oh man, they were to sacrifice uh, the best of their son. No, their kids, They again, it doesn't explain it here, but they would redeem them by buying them back with an animal sacrifice. And they'd have to give a certain portion of money for each of the firstborn sons. And then in verse 37 talks about the tithes, they were to be brought. In verse 38, they were to be brought to the Levites. So understand the tie, the 10% was actually the salaries. The other offerings was for the temple, for the poor, for the civil governments. There was different things for different portions of of the ministry, but the tithes were 100% the salaries for the Levites. And they were to be collecting more tithes than they actually put out. So there was to be collected into a storehouse, so there was always... uh, plenty of salaries to keep the Levites working in the temple and the temple going. And in verse 39, for the children of Israel, the children of Levi shall bring the offerings of the grain and of the new wine and the oil in the storerooms, which the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are, and we will not neglect the house of God. So they made this covenant, we won't neglect the house of God. So what did we learn in application here? Number one, we need to commit to base our lives on all the Word of God. They've never done that. And they they realize, man, it affects my ties, it affects my days of my week, it affects my mornings, it affects my evenings, it affects my relationships uh, in the community, it, re- it it changes my relationships with my children, with my wife. It all of a sudden, when you're in the word of God, it affects every aspect of our life and how wonderfully it does number two we learn to be faithful in our giving in the new testament we're to give something far greater than a temple like the jews had they didn't have they had sacrifices of animals we have the sacrifice of jesus they're worshiping under the law we're worshiping without a law we're worshiping grace grace And by faith, being righteous as God is righteous. Boy, whatever they gave in the Old Testament, we should say times a hundred in the New Testament, right? Whatever we give, it wouldn't be less than they give. It would be the same or even greater. Number three, to be thankful for the one and final sacrifice in Christ. Christ has fulfilled all the law. We're no longer under the law, but under grace. Oh, I'm so glad that our covenant is with Christ. I'm so glad our commitment is to him and his words of truth. Aren't you just thankful for the Bible? The Bible is God's DNA on this earth. It's God's fingerprint. Well, actually, the next couple of chapters pick up an excitement. Not all the Bible is equally as exciting. It's all true. But some of it is more fun than other portions of it. It's all good to learn, though, isn't it?